You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. My two guests today are some of the youngest and most talented thinkers in the Bitcoin space, and that's Will Clementi and Dylan LeClaire. Both of these gentlemen are rising stars within the community for their contributions to on-chain analytics and analysis. They both have incredible articles that have been featured by some of the biggest Bitcoin publications. And on today's show, we talk about the derivatives market and how it influences the market cycles, what it might mean moving forward with respect to volatility, some of their favorite on-chain metrics, why some of those metrics are or aren't important in certain circumstances, and much, much more. So get ready for this really fun conversation with Will and Dylan. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like we said in the intro, I'm here with Will and Dylan and my, oh my, you guys are like the whiz kids of Bitcoin. I mean, it's crazy to me how quickly, I think that's the thing I keep telling myself is I just look at your age and I say, my God, I didn't, I didn't know this stuff that these guys are talking about like five years ago. Like I look at, you, at where you guys are at and it's like, how in the world can they possibly know what they know at their age? And it's just a little mind blowing to me. So I guess that's my first question is like, what has allowed you guys to be able to just turn on the, the afterburners to catch up with people? I mean, it has to be technology that's, that's assisted in your ability to find key people or whatever it might be to accelerate that. But like, dude, it's crazy. Preston, like first and foremost, you obviously had a, had a huge impact on both Dylan and I. Like I remember, it's really strange being on this podcast because I remember about a year ago, I was working at Michael's and I had like an overnight stocking job and I would come in and I would listen to your podcast. I would come in at like 2 or 3 a.m. and I would just chain listen to it until like 9, 10 a.m. when I got off the shift. And it, at this time, it wasn't even Bitcoin. It was, you know, you're talking about, it was like, Regular you know, market. your first 25 episodes. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about all the Warren Buffett stuff. I got out security analysis, big debt crisis. See, like, I love oh, this. I didn't know you were into the value side of it, Will. Yeah, yeah. At first, I, I came into it that way. I got like uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, yeah. all these books like you recommended early on. And yeah, I mean, aside from like you specifically, like just in general, I think the internet has a huge part uh, to do with it. You know, I've learned way more on the internet, I'm sure Dylan agrees, you know, than, than I, I probably would have otherwise. You know, I've learned much more through podcasts and, and YouTube than I did in all my school combined. I wasn't always great in school, but it's funny, like you find something you're interested in and you know, you kind of go down the rabbit hole and lead yourself through that. Yeah, I mean, I think like we have more content than ever before. And it's like if you're interested in something, there's no excuse aside from maybe like becoming an engineer or something in medicine for you not to be able to to teach it to yourself. And so especially with finance. I mean, there's all kinds of content out there for you to consume now. Dylan? I agree with that. And I relate to almost all of what Will just said. I honestly, in 2018, my first, like, I was always a math guy. I tried science out, just wasn't a, a big fan and was like, all right, I'll, I guess I'll use my, my love for numbers to kind of crunch some numbers in the business world, whatever that means. And, and so I should probably learn about investing in all of this. And what, one of my first things I did 
was I literally went into the podcast app and looked up investing investing podcast, and there were there you guys were. Uh, <laughs> I There's a little bit of SEO little, to that. So yeah. as far as naming conventions, yes, but yeah, I mean you nailed it there. Yeah, and so I I went down. Uh, I mean I was I was learning about like the I guess like the fiat world uh, and the, you know the kind of the central bank monetary system and and all of that as I was at the same time in parallel just. I had a Twitter account earlier, and so I, I wasn't active on it. But crypto Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, I found the kind of the Bitcoin corner, not specifically, but you know they were very active and passionate. And I first stumbled upon this at three thousand at the bottom of the bear market, and you had these, you know, this group that drawn down eighty five percent, you know, and they're just loud, obnoxious, but they were convicted. And I was like, you know, these people, maybe they're not crazy, uh, maybe they there's some there's something, uh, you know, there's something more to it. And so I just kind of passively learned um, about Bitcoin and, and the kind of the legacy system and in tandem up and through my freshman year of college, 2020. Uh, the second semester of that was COVID and they kicked us all, basically kicked yeah. us all out and sent us home. And then I was kind of right at the tip of like going down the whole rabbit hole uh, of Bitcoin. Uh, and then COVID comes, they print a bunch of money. I have so much spare time on my hands and my Zoom classes that are taught by like boomer professors about investing in economics were like awful. And I was like paying for this. And it, it was so, so I dropped out um, and just decided to like, I needed sats. That's what like, I, I viewed it, the opportunity cost in Bitcoin, especially after like, I read Jeff Booth's thesis about like technology dematerializing everything. I was like, okay, well, and I, I kind of all put it together. It was like, okay, I, I think the opportunity cost of everything is Bitcoin and information is free and abundant. So what am I doing? Um, and, you know, I guess like 18 months later, we're here just talking about, talking about Bitcoin and we just hang out on Twitter all day. But really, I think just the internet's like, you know, the arena of ideas uh, is what, the, you know, the most awesome thing is credentials don't matter here. It's just what you can bring to the conversation. Amen to, uh, that. Amen to that. You know? And to add on to that, I think too, like, I mean, Dylan and I's platforms, which have grown like more than I think either of us could have ever imagined. I want you to hit on this because learning through this many people, Will, like you've had, I don't even know what your follower count now is, but I know it's a lot. Like you're what, you're over 350 or 400 or something like 400,000 people following you specifically. The learning threshold that has gone up because you have so many people that are cueing you in different directions. Some of it's just, you know, people just, I see all different types. I know you guys see all different types. But there are people that will throw things your way that you would never have learned or seen if you didn't have such a massive platform of people following you. So talk to us about some of the things that you've learned through, through that. First of all, just being able to reach out to people and ask questions is, is yeah. the first benefit of that. I'm grateful to be in a position now I can just reach out to pretty much anybody on Twitter and they'll most likely respond because they get the notification now just because I have you know, a large follower base. Or I can tweet at somebody, but yeah, and just in terms of like posting things and and the feedback, like I can put out you know a chart or a metric or an opinion on something, and I have hundreds or thousands of people that are you know criticizing it. Sometimes not in the in the nicest or most respectful way, but you know I think part of it is being able to kind of pull the maybe disrespect or like rudeness out of a comment and being able to say okay, well. Maybe they didn't deliver this in the best way, but what they're actually saying has some merit to it. Or, you know, aside from aside from the bad apples, just in general, you get people that will give you their their feedback, right? I'll post 
you know, a lot of the stuff I'm posting is like market related content to Bitcoin. And so I put out an opinion and people say, well, you're not looking at this, this, or this, or with this metric, what you also need to consider is that this might be skewing the data. And so sometimes just putting out an idea or kind of framing something in an open-ended way is the best way to learn. Like I posted something last week and I said, do you think over time Bitcoin's volatility increases or decreases? And I got freaking Sailor commenting on it and giving me his opinion. Yeah. And it's without that platform that I have now, I mean, there's no way I would be able to get some of these insights. And yeah, like that to me has been the coolest thing is is asking, you know, when we're talking about just being able to learn, asking questions is huge. That's that's been my biggest asset is over the last couple of months, I've kind of evolved my learning just from like a pure market standpoint. Like I did not at all predict the the May crash. I got into on-chain analytics like a couple of weeks before that. It was a complete noob. Over the summer, I got really kind of upset at myself because I missed that whole move, really kind of grinded out my understanding of all that stuff. And through that, I really kind of built a um, community, if you will, of, of different people that were interested in it through Telegram, also in just in, in DMs. But you know, now I'm in some of these Telegram groups. And like I remember early on, you talked about the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Yeah. You talk about like masterminds. These groups that I'm in are essentially that, where it's like all these people that are specialized in this one thing, and we're all kind of putting our heads together to come to the best conclusion. It's like 15 or 20 of us, different fund managers or just independent on-chain researchers. And we kind of all are you know, just like bouncing ideas off of each other. And, and I think people more than anything, I mean, books are amazing and, and books can, can help you understand a lot of things, but bouncing ideas off of people and just asking questions. I've learned so much through that just early on, just reaching out. I mean, that's how, that's how I got originally noticed by you was I tweeted out to you. I put out this article when I had like 300 followers and I, it was like Bitcoin's role in the financial system. And I tagged you. I tagged Dylan actually. And you crushed it. You Thanks. crushed the article. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I didn't really think anyone was going to respond, but then you retweeted it. I was yeah. like, oh my God, Preston Pitch retweeted my article. <laughs> it was like freaking out. And then from there, you know, it was just, I was like, okay, well, this is how you reach out to people. Yeah. I just started adding, tagging people and everything. Whenever I have questions now, like I just reach out to, to fund managers or different, you know, reach out to like Lynn Alden if I have a question about macro or different like crypto fund managers about, you know, some of their opinion on the market over the next couple months. And it's just like, People are the biggest alpha, not just in markets, but just in, in understanding things in general. If you can handle the trolls, because there's trolls, especially at the level of followers that both of you guys have, if the individual can handle it and they can ask the right questions, it's just insane. It's insane what you can learn. And you, you mentioned the idea of a mastermind. People in the past might have a mastermind of five people, and some of them might not even be experts really kind of in what you're interested in learning about. But with Twitter, I mean, if you got 400,000 followers or whatever it is you guys got, I mean, you can uncover just anything. And you can ask questions like, all right, I'm interested in learning about this. What's the best book on the planet for that? And you'll get a hundred different book recommendations from wherever, right? Like, it's just crazy. We're not the best app for, for learning and, and doing this stuff. I mean, especially being a, being a Bitcoiner on Twitter, I think I started actively using my Twitter account in like May of 2020 about posting about Bitcoin and following like plebs on Twitter, just like hardcore, like Bitcoin maximalists, like interacting with them. Half these people are pseudonyms, you know, with a cartoon character yeah, as their name, which brilliant. is the coolest thing. 
Yeah, because you have people like, it's so funny when you see like Janet Yellen and, and she'll tweet out something or some, some credentialed, you know, check mark. And I say that now just recently, recently <laughs> getting a check mark, but you know, they're getting ratioed by a pleb with 300 followers who's destroying their, their argument with just, you know, first principles reasoning. And now that we got high bandwidth spaces, like I get onto these spaces. Yeah, the spaces you, are amazing. And you're talking to somebody who doesn't even have a picture on their profile with five followers. And they're like some of the most intelligently crafted arguments and points and critical thinking that you've ever heard. Like it's just mind blowing how much talent is out there if you're willing to ask the question or and just make yourself vulnerable, I guess, to, hey, I don't know what this is, but help me understand like what different ideas there are around it. So I guess going back to the original question, like how are you guys able to catapult yourself to such a high level of understanding and and influence in the market in a constructive way? And I mean, it's really you guys have been asking amazing questions. You guys have been posting like awesome content, but you've also been open to the criticism to adjust it, to update it, to I mean, Dylan, you and I were having a DM about this, and this this was actually my next question, I think, about this metric, this long-term holder versus short-term holder, and how I just love, absolutely love this chart. And I know both of you guys have coordinated different ideas around this this chart, but Dylan, explain this chart to people, what it is, and I mean, the performance on this. We'll post this out after we're done with this interview, or one of you guys can post it in the comments or something when this, when this interview airs. But talk to us about what this is, this idea. The core kind of thing about Bitcoin on-chain analytics and, and what makes it so like, different than anything we've kind of seen before, I guess like public blockchain like ledgers. I mean, there, there are other, uh, other ledgers, other cryptos, but Bitcoin on-chain specifically, like Bitcoin and the UTXO set, um, you know, Satoshi kind of airdropping this thing onto the world in 2009. I mean, basically, you can see like you have a real-time property rights for, you know, this global monetary system that's growing organically. And so you can see basically like Bitcoin's market price is $10. Well, you can see like that, you know, the average Bitcoin was traded for $3. And so, you know, we're not, we're not talking about $10, but, you know, when you're looking at, say, price today at 60000 well, the realized price, basically like the on-chain cost basis for that, like everybody on the network is like twenty four thousand. Like a one point two trillion dollar market cap realized cap is like four hundred fifty billion, something around there. Um, and so you can kind of see the transparently, like you know, these things with on chain. And so the chart I showed you was the short term holder cost basis versus the long term holder cost basis. Um, and and Glassnode's quantification of that. Um, there's some statistical threshold that is, is one hundred fifty five days, but it's essentially the longer a UTXO or a longer a Bitcoin is held the less likely it's going to be spent into the future. And that's true when analyzing the entire UTXO set over the course of Bitcoin's history. And so while it seems kind of arbitrary, it's not. And we can do some pretty cool things with analyzing the trends of these long and short-term holders. Um, And so what you kind of see is during bull markets, the short-term holder cost basis, basically new money, new capital, you know, coins that are being, um, you know, transferred over short time spans on on the network, the cost basis of those coins is getting bid up. While a long-term holder cost basis is is flat, and essentially it's because you know hodlers, stackers set the floor in bear markets. The holders of last resort, the satoshi accumulators of last resort, is what puts a bottom on this Bitcoin price. And because of its absolute scarcity, you know, as people kind of discover that Bitcoin is the best monetary asset the world has ever seen, because that's a fact. Basically, you know, they want to secure an allocation and they have to bid up 
the price of this asset in dollars to acquire it. And so you see that that uh, that bull market trend is essentially short-term holders increasing against long-term holders. Eventually, Bitcoin's price action going parabolic incentivizes uh, some of the network participants to take some chips off the table. And so um, you see that in the UTXO set with all these coins that haven't moved in a long time hitting the market or making an on-chain transaction. And so while some of those may not be economic sells in the sense that, hey, I just transferred some of my my funds from one, one uh, wallet to the next. But what you see at the top of bull markets is a lot of these coins coming, like coming on to the market or moving on chain all at once, especially old coins. And so from there, you see that trend start to change where you see a lot of long-term holders, um, their coins are moving uh, into the short-term holder cohort they just spent. And so that long-term cost basis starts to appreciate in a really, really fast manner at the same time where the price action just went up 20x, 100x, whatever the multiple is, you know, that marginal buyer just gets exhausted. And so that's when you kind of see the cyclicality, the reflexivity work in the other way. And you see, you, you see these, these seemingly random boom and busts over the course of Bitcoin's history that aren't actually all that random. It's just you know, the, the natural like, kind of cyclical volatility of the monetization of this asset. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, 
How to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds. How to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments. How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. If we could just back up for a second. So like realized cap is essentially the market capitalization of Bitcoin based off of when a coin was last moved. So to, the way to think of this is like Roger Ver, who bought Bitcoin, whatever, at like a dollar, right? Let's say he bought $100,000 of Bitcoin at $1, okay? And he hasn't moved those coins whatsoever. That's now like- He moved whatever. them in 2017, but keep, but keep going. Yeah. So, so now that, you know, in, in market cap terms, that takes up a, a whatever 6.1 or whatever Bitcoin's at, $6.2 billion chunk of market cap. But if he hasn't moved those coins in realized cap, he's still only adding $100,000 to that. So it's essentially you're looking at the amount of value that is stored in Bitcoin. Or in other words, for people who are familiar with like technical analysis, you're looking at an on-chain VWAP, so an, a volume-weighted average price of Bitcoin. And this was originally conceptualized by Pierre Richard. And then Nick Carter actually created the metric. And so Pierre Richard came up with the idea way back in like Bitcoin's early days. Uh, Nick Carter actually presented it, created the metric at a conference. And, and so that was where Realized Cap was born. And so Realized Cap itself is useful aside from looking at it in, in more granularity, um, because in bear markets, whenever the market cap goes below Realized Cap, by definition, the market's in capitulation, right? Because it's below the average cost basis of all the investors in the market. And so then what Dylan said, like what Dylan did, like he said, was take this a step further and then using Glassnode's heuristics of the short-term and long-term holders, comparing the two. And then if you actually run the ratio between the two of those as well, you get, you get an interesting um, cyclical oscillator. But one, one other thing I, that Dylan didn't hit on that I think is important to understand is that there's this natural dynamic between short-term and long-term holders. And so what you see is that the long-term guys scale into the bear market. They don't perfectly time the bottom. So they don't bottom tick perfectly, but they scale into the bottom of the bear and then they scale out into the major bull rallies that we have. So they, they buy into weakness or scale into weakness and they scale out into strength. And so you see this natural dynamic where into the bear, all the short-term guys leave, all the speculators get out of the market or they age into long-term holders if they stay on, if they stay in the market, right? And so over time, obviously, you have more and more people that come in because number go up is basically the best form of marketing for Bitcoin. So you have, over time, more short-term holders come in the bear market, become long-term holders into the bear. I mean, they come into, into the bull market and then turn into long-term holders into the bear. But you also see the long-term guys, as Dylan touched on, come in, step in, and kind of set that floor into the bear market. And so you see this natural dynamic where if you look at the two of the charts, they go the complete opposite directions. They converge and then they disperse into the, into the bull market. And so Dylan took that a step further by looking at their cost basis and then the behavior of the two of those. And, and there, is, there is a lot of signal in that. Short-term holder cost basis itself is actually another really interesting metric. It's the short-term holder realized price has been a really interesting level that Bitcoin prices historically reacted with. Right now, that's at $53,000, which is 
interestingly, right around that uh, kind of trillion dollar market cap, which you also see has kind of been a line in the sand for investors through when you look at like transactional activity and on-chain volume, you see that's kind of aligned in the sand there. So there's some confluence there. But in bull markets, what you see is that price tends to bounce off of short-term holder realized price, which is another interesting variant of that. But yeah, that was an awesome uh, metric created by Dylan that takes two of those concepts, realized price, which is the on-chain cost basis or, or average cost basis of investors on-chain, with that kind of cyclical behavior that you see between those short and long-term holders. Dylan, I'm curious if you've run the numbers. So when you sent the chart back to me, I said, can you just put this in a green and a red status of like, I own it or I sold it and I'm, and I'm out of the market kind of scenario, a very binary scenario. I'm curious what the outperformance is. Have you calculated that? I actually haven't. I should back test the returns. You need to figure that out. And then when we air this, I want to be able to tell people what it is. And I know it's, it's better than Bitcoin itself, significantly better. On-chain is so fascinating because I mean, you have this, I'm just repeating myself, but you have this transparent ledger of ownership Yeah. for, for an X-ray asset that's monetizing on, on every single balance sheet, whether, whether someone likes it or not, you're not insulated against Bitcoin's monetization. <laughs> So you need to get this, or I mean, eventually you're going to need to ba- denominate your balance sheet in Bitcoin terms. It's just whether you've realized that and accepted it yet. And so uh, being able to kind of track this live uh, and see every single, you know, every single uh, Bitcoin owned on the network uh, in full transparency, it's pretty fascinating. And just, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface on, on kind of all of this stuff. The Glassnode metric for long-term holder versus short-term holder Help us understand what that uh, cutoff is. Like, what time frame are we talking here? Yeah, so it's 155 days, and so the reasoning is, as Dylan kind of touched on, what you see is that as a coin is held in a wallet, the longer it's held in a wallet, the less likely it is to be spent. And then Glassnode's kind of run some statistical studies to look and say, okay, where's that cutoff that the likelihood of them spending those coins really cuts off the most? And that's right at 155 days, which is also five months. So I know for a lot of the hardcore Bitcoin maxis, they're going to be like, five months, these guys are wimps. That's nothing. But it's just when, when you kind of backtest uh, the behavior, that's where you see the likelihood of those coins being spent cuts off the most. So this is one of the reasons I like that chart so much. My opinion, so we're in a little bit of a sell-off right now. I think the price went up to close to 68,000. It's down near 60,000 right now. There's whales out there. And these whales can move that price more than I think a lot of people realize. And not only can they move the price, but they can move the price at times when you're maybe least expecting it or you just you don't know what their reason for a sell or a buy necessarily is. And then the leverage that's in the market just kind of accentuates whatever it was that they were doing, or just kind of pushes it in the up or down direction even more. So my personal opinion is somebody who's kind of trading this thing in a day-for-day kind of way, or like in a very short time horizon, I don't have the metrics. And I guess I'm speaking more for myself. I don't have enough confidence in being able to trade that, especially in a way where I would be able to outperform the tax burden that's associated with every one of those sell orders. So Preston Pish, right? I am a much longer time horizon looking type person. And this goes back to probably my Buffett days and just kind of like how I invest in equities. 
And so when I buy something, like I'm really looking for something that I can own for a year plus at a, at a minimum. And so when I looked at the chart that the two of you have, have put out there and Dylan has really kind of refined, when I'm looking at that chart, I'm saying, this is something that kind of meets that time horizon where the whales in the market aren't going to be able to kind of bump me around and kind of mess up whatever it is I'm trying to do. Because it's just too big of a macro theme and the market's moving in, in hundreds of billion dollar type waves. And so when I'm looking at that and I'm saying, hey, if, if I'm going to, and I'm not one to sell, but if I'm going to stockpile fiat or cash to buy at an opportune time, this past event would have been a great scenario where this metric that we're talking about right now, you would have been stockpiling cash. You would have not been buying more Bitcoin and you would have probably nailed, like literally nailed the living hell out of the bottom of this recent six-month downturn that we had. And if you would have stockpiled your free cash flows for six months and inserted it into the market right then, I see this metric as being just extremely valuable for that type of investor. And that's how I am. That's how I'm going about it, at least. Preston, the most, the most fascinating thing is you have this, you know, the on-chain stuff. It's kind of like you know, these large macro trends. And then at the same time, overlaid on top of it, and this, you know, it definitely impacts the price a lot uh, over the short term. It, it, it matters far more, uh, is this derivatives market. And essentially what you have are these completely you know, free and open and wild west public capital markets that are, that are being built out all over the world. Um, and they're you know, on-chain settled monetary asset, this, this free and open, decentralized, absolutely scarce monetary asset. Um, can be is is being traded with with fully functional derivatives that are settling billions of dollars a day. And so, what if I told you when this metric flipped and you started to see kind of you know all these long term holders you know selling at once, and at the same time you could have just gone one x net short or uh, you know one x short on these derivatives, where you're basically holding if you're if you're one x short with Bitcoin as collateral, you're ba- you're basically holding a synthetic dollar. So if you one yeah. x on a derivative, x short on a uh, derivatives exchange, you're talking you're, like perps, like putting the putting yeah. the Bitcoin. Yeah. And so at the same time as as the market is convinced we're in this new paradigm, and and I get it. Like when Bitcoin rips, and it's it's you know when Bitcoin passes 100k, like we're all going to be euphoric because that's been this kind of eye in the sky target for a while, and it's going to feel good. But you know when at the same time at the, you know everyone's euphoric and sentiments at all time highs, and all these coins are coming out of the market. You can get like fifty percent, hundred percent annualized at times, just going short on the perps, and it's because the euphoria, the sentiment, everybody's levered long on the derivative side of things. And the way that these say the, the perpetual swaps work is it's tethered to the spot index, it's tethered to the spot price with that funding rate. And so if if the derivative bulls want to bid up that price all all they want, that's great. But that funding rate is going to go so high that you know it's going to basically cost them. 100% APR on an annualized basis, which was, which was kind of where it hit sometimes at the top on like Bybit, Binance, these exchanges that were all using Bitcoin as collateral to long Bitcoin. And, and they were paying 75%, 100% annualized rates to do it. But, but the problem with longing Bitcoin with Bitcoin is that if the price goes down, well, your position goes down at the same time as your collateral value. And that's kind of why you saw that you know, especially harsh Drawdown to 30k. I mean, we went from 40 to 30 in about two hours, <laughs> um, and so like you know, that's why you see those those dislocations and and you know those major volatility kind of blowups um, is because it's it's free and open and you have all these kind of derivatives layered on top of it. But that's what makes it so fun. 
I think what, what Dylan just touched on is really important to understand. One of the one of the more uh, bullish uh, kind of setups for Bitcoin is is the percentage of futures contracts that are currently margined with crypto, which I know that a lot of people don't like that word, but crypto versus USD or stable coins. And the reasoning is what Dylan just alluded to was the convexity that these contracts have. So essentially, if you're longing Bitcoin with Bitcoin as collateral, that's awesome when the market's going up because you not only is your P&L decreasing, but your collateral is increasing in value as well. Well, as soon as the market starts to turn against you, it goes the complete opposite direction because not only is your P&L decreasing, but your collateral is also decreasing in value. So you're even more likely to get stopped out or liquidated or freak out and sell for that matter. And then conversely, when, when more of the market is margined with stable coins or USD, those contracts are more likely to be squeezed to the upside. And the reasoning is because if you're short with Bitcoin as collateral, and let's say the market starts going against you, not only is your P&L decreasing because you're short, but you also don't have this inadvertent hedge that you do when you're margin with Bitcoin. Because if you are in a short and it starts going against you, well, yeah, your P&L is going against you, but your collateral is increasing in value. So when you see a larger portion of the market being collateralized with stables or USD versus crypto, that puts us in a more healthy state. It means that A, we're less likely to have this convexity to the downside, and B, shorts are more likely to be squeezed. And so currently, the percentage of total futures open interest that's margined with crypto is down from like 70% in April. Now it's down to like, I think the mid 40s, Dylan, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, something like that, but what's almost, almost half of what it was earlier this year. And so to also touch on what you mentioned a second ago, on the short term timeframes, price is very much driven by A, the derivatives, and then B, price levels. So if I'm analyzing the market and I, I, don't, I don't day trade and I, Dylan doesn't either, but when we're kind of trying to understand what's going on in the market, because we both have like market intelligence newsletters and we kind of need to understand like yeah. what's going on. Yeah. What you can look for is these dislocations between the derivatives market and price. And then as well as you can look at uh, order books are another thing, and then just straight up price level. Some people you know, live and die by just looking at price levels and they, they just look at price action. Where funding really comes into play is, as Dylan mentioned, it's, it's, it's the peg for perps to the spot index price, which is essentially just this weighted average of all the major spot exchanges weighted by their volume. And so whenever funding is positive, what it means is that the perpetual uh, contract is trading above the average spot price. And so usually what that means is that perp traders are more aggressive relative to spot. It can also mean that the, the spot price is trading, the spot is selling off stronger than perps. And then conversely, like if you have negative funding, it can mean A, that spot is buying while, while perps are shorting, but it can also mean Let's say you have this big leverage cascade, right? And, and you get a bunch of longs that are liquidated. Well, by definition, that's going to drive the per price lower than the spot price. So there's a bit of nuance there. But generally, whenever you have prolonged high funding, that means that tra traders have been greedy for, for a while in the market. Where this, is really, where this really has signal and where this is really actionable, because we had high funding earlier this year. For months, for like two or three months, we yeah. had we had yeah. to get we had to get reset like one time. Everyone's like, "Oh, this is a new paradigm. Funding can just be positive forever." Obviously, that wasn't the case. When you look on the kind of the intraday timeframes, where this really is actionable is when there's a dislocation between the direction of funding and the direction of price. 
So an example would be if you start to see this actually happened, and not to show myself, but I posted about this like when we came off of the summer lows. Remember, we had this really big short squeeze and price drove up to like 48K on Binance. Yeah. We came off. Yeah. It drove up at, uh, I think it was like the, the first week of August or something like this. What happened was is price was grinding up. Meanwhile, you had funding coming, driving down. So essentially what that was saying is that the spot market was buying and perps were so used to fading every single rally, they were raking in money, fading every rally for the last three months. But they're like, okay, this is like the last three fake out rallies that we've had. And so they were just fading it. They got squeezed. That's one way that it can have a signal. The other way would be the, the complete opposite. So instead, if you see funding increasing while price is decreasing. So what that means is that traders are essentially leveraged longing the dip. And so if you're seeing price continue to grind down while, while the perpetual swap funding is, is increasing, that means that essentially the spot market is driving price down and perp traders are, are leveraged longing the dip. So whenever you see these dislocations, that's when you tend to see these things get resolved in the direction of price. And then you can also look at that with a bit more granularity in terms of specific exchanges. So like a kind of rule of thumb is like whenever Bybit is doing something, that generally gets faded because Bybit's like a primarily like retail-driven exchange. Mm-hmm. So one, I mean, one example would going back to that short squeeze from the end of summer, you saw Bybit was fading the rally really aggressively. Like I, I forget it was like 70 or 80 percent, uh, negative 70 or 80 percent APR. And then meanwhile, you had like FTX and Deribit, which tends to be where smarter capital is. They had positive funding. So you can, you can look at these dislocations as well to kind of get a good uh, picture on, on what's perhaps going to occur. And then, and then last thing would just be going back to what we touched on with the convexity or, or uh, the, more, the higher likelihood of, of stablecoin USD contracts being uh, squeezed. You can look at, are, are the contracts that are being opened Coin or or stable margin. So you know, ideal scenario for the bears would be prices grinding down, and and meanwhile you have a bunch of coin margined open interest, and you know funding is mooning. That's like okay, you have all these perp traders that are leveraged longing the dip, trying to catch a falling knife. Meanwhile, the spot market is just fading this, and this is what happened also on that move down in May. I remember um, when we moved out when we had a massive flush to thirty k the night before. I'm not saying I called the initial move down, but I remember the night before we had that last kind of capitulation leg down to, to 30K, I remember looking at my phone and seeing that funding was rising. And I was like, oh God, like this is not good because price was just absolutely nuking and everyone was trying to catch a falling knife. And usually the way it goes is that you have to see these guys completely get wiped out. You know, These traders completely give up on trying to leverage long the dip. And then you know, usually you start to see funding stay negative, and that's when price then begins to kind of grind or, or consolidate out of that capitulation area. As you guys are describing this, I'm sure most people who are hearing this are saying, this sounds really complicated. This sounds really involved. But as I'm listening to this, it sounds like, and Will, you talked about this a little bit, that what happens on the upside is almost identical on the downside as far as how the leverage is kind of forcing the the, the price action to kind of uh, stabilize. They become forced buyers or sellers, essentially. That's right. That's right. So when you think about this leverage, all these leveraged uh, markets that now exist, the perps, I don't think there's, I still don't think they're available here in the US, but everywhere else in the world, they are. 
when we think about that, is this causing the price to become more volatile or is it causing the price to uh, normalize to whatever the actual price action was going to be in the first place with, with less volatility? How do you guys see that taking place? I think it's option one. I mean, it's, it's basically it's whipsawing. Bitcoin has some sort of collective intrinsic value, maybe intrinsic values. So it has some sort of subjective value for everyone around the world. Um, and that value is, is basically going up for like, it has been going up in a straight line. More and more people come to understand Bitcoin and subjectively value it. But you know, underneath the surface, you have, you have all the, you know, the volatility, enhancing things like leverage, coin margin, all the stuff that Will dug into. It's essentially, it's just, it's just lay, layering on directional bets, which causes the market just to just whipsaw around. And so I think the most exciting thing about this is that, and it's the thing, Preston, that I've, I've seen you, especially the last month, just nail into is like done with centrally planned, you know, cost of capital academics that are just clueless bureaucrats that have some sort of power in this incumbent system. These 20th century institutions so that done are just completely, <laughs> completely incompetent. And so here we just kind of have this open source decentralized software that's just TikTok next block in a completely just unemotional way. Yeah, unemotional kind yeah. of way. Yeah. It's mechanical. Sometime in the next 10 minutes, there's going to be a block and there's going to be property ownership transferred on an immutable ledger. And, and so you can do all this stuff on top of it. The BTC USD price, I think it's going to be increasingly uh, volatile actually over the next decade as a, as a result of this incumbent system basically eating itself as it continues to just kind of delever and then have to get, get bailed out and pumped up with more stimulus. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's just kind of doing its own thing. And then you, know, you don't really have to care about all, all these bureaucrats and, and everyone else if, if you're just you know, passively allocating to Bitcoin. It's, it's kind of solving for itself. The cost of capital now with these Bitcoin derivatives, yes, it's volatile. It's variable. The APR, the cost of capital in Bitcoin markets, but it's free. I mean, if you want to long Bitcoin, if you want to get stablecoin liquidity in, in Bitcoin markets and crypto markets, if you want to borrow against your Bitcoin, well, you can do that. Sometimes you can do that at 20%. Sometimes you can do that at 5%. But the cost of capital is not set by the Fed funds rate anymore. Uh, and that's the most exciting thing. And increasingly, more and more people are, are realizing that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, 
And it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And nobody gets bailed out. This is another thing too. It's like, if you get liquidated, no one's coming to save you, right? And, in and fact, the people this- on Twitter, they're just tap dancing on your grave, Will. They're buying your long liquidation. And, yeah. You know, I, I think this kind of is a bit more philosophical, but, you know, I, I think the long liquidations are kind of a beautiful thing because it kind of reinforces this concept that we now have in this, in this kind of free and open market that you have personal responsibility. Amen. You know, if, you may, if you make this decision to leverage and, and take a directional bet and think that you have some kind of edge in the market and that you can outsmart the market, well, you're going to be held accountable for that no matter which way that resolves. I think that's a beautiful thing. And so like you have all this stuff going on in the derivatives market and and the way I kind of view it is like the Ray Dalio like long-term debt cycle thing. You know like the visual he has where it's you have this long-term kind of thing that, that kind of moves up into the right, it fluctuates, but then you have these short-term cycles that kind of move around the the major long-term thing. And so like I think first of all you have this real hardcore base of hodlers that are in this asset. You can see that in on-chain data. If you look at the entities with 0.1 to 1 BTC, their holdings are literally up and to the right, no matter what. They uptick a little more in the bull markets, but even in the bear, they don't even budge. They just go up and to the right. And you take like the portion of supply held by entities with less than 10 BTC, over time, that's only increasing. And so you have this 
That's talking about a whole nother discussion about the supply distribution. And we can talk later about that's a bunch of nonsense about people saying like a certain, you know, a bunch of Bitcoin is held by a small portion of people. But over time, you have this hardcore base of people that are just stacking Bitcoin no matter what. And so you have that paired with kind of the, the long and short-term holder behavior that we talked about. And that's kind of Bitcoin's longer-term cyclical behavior that you kind of see as kind of outlines the behavior of Bitcoin's price action. And then meanwhile, on the, on the short-term timeframes, you have all these apes that are coming in on leverage and driving the price in, right? It's like, we're on this rocket ship and then you have these apes coming in and we, sh- we have to shake off the apes through the liquidations. And so that, that's kind of like the mental framework I have for it is that at the end of the day, adoption for Bitcoin is only increasing and that's only going up and to the right. And we have fluctuations between some of the behaviors we touched on earlier. And then on the very short-term timeframes, we have all the stuff that's generally uh, driven by the derivatives behavior. And so for long-term holders, none of this stuff matters. You just keep buying and that goes to the, the very broad cyclical behavior that we talk about Bitcoin is, is that adoption is up and to the right. All these different metrics we talk about, um, even just like the number of entities on the network, that all this stuff is up and to the right. But when you, when you look, zoom in on these shorter term timeframes, that, you know, that's, that's what's really driving a lot of this stuff. I've seen a couple of these kind of like posts or, or memes on Twitter where it's, it's showing you like, this is Bitcoin you know, zoomed in and it's like really choppy. This is Bitcoin zoomed in a year out and it's like kind of, it's kind of cyclical. And then this is Bitcoin on a 50-year time horizon, right? And then you just see like this FS curve. And so for the long-term holder guys, you know, this stuff might be interesting. You might want to understand what's driving the price action. But at the end of the day, none of it really matters because adoption for Bitcoin is only increasing. And you can see that as well in the data. I love that point. And the point about the number of users is just up and to the right is the part that I think is just insanely important for people that are maybe looking at this from the outside and just saying, I don't get it. I don't understand why anybody would pay attention to this. It's just imaginary magic money. And that's the thing that I think is just, you just can't unsee what that chart looks like. Yeah. Well, I I love those points. I'm curious what you guys think about the ETF, specifically the spot ETF that was just declined by the SEC. I don't really think that anyone was surprised by that. And you kind of saw that through the market on kind of the intraday reaction to it, where the spot ETF rejection actually kind of marked the intraday bottom on that day. Because I think I don't think anyone was really surprised or any sophisticated investors at least were surprised by seeing that get rejected. I think that's something that most of the market probably isn't expecting to see for at least another year out or so. So yeah, I mean, I'm not really surprised to to see that. Obviously, we would love to have a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. And I think You'll see massive inflows to it whenever it is approved, but you know I, I don't think it, it was surprising to to see that get declined. I think uh, Barry's definitely up to something. I think Barry's <laughs> watching these ETF rejections and kind of taking notes and kind of tweaking his his approach for converting Grayscale to an ETF. But I guess I guess time will tell with that. Hey, I I noticed your frog meme of Barry the other night. Just so <laughs> Big you know, week. <laughs> I almost shot my drink out of my nose when I saw that. I mean, I guess the question is, why are they waiting? Or like, what are they protecting? They're not protecting anyone from anything, I guess. I mean, I guess, I guess Gary Gensler wants you to hold your own keys, is what I gather. You could make the argument that uh, for the people that don't maybe have access to buying spot, they're actually doing a disservice and they're actually adding because they're forcing them into a product, into an ETF product that is futures based and doesn't have good tracking error or has very bad tracking error. 
I think the futures ETF is a terrible product for anyone who's looking to terrible. invest in Bitcoin long term. Because for anybody who doesn't, who isn't really familiar with futures, and futures isn't my expertise, but essentially what happens is, is every time, every time it gets to month end, they have to roll the contract to the next month. And so over time, whenever the futures curve is in contango, what's happening is they're selling the current one and, and buying the next month's contract. And so you're basically taking the hit on the difference between those every time they roll it over each month. And so the, the only people that are really benefiting from that are the people that are coming in in this kind of market neutral way and buying spot, selling the future, and they can kind of capture the difference between the two because the, the curve is, is getting bid out into contango. Preston, I know you love that word contango. <laughs> <laughs> I think but, that's going to apply uh, much later in the cycle, but I think it's going to be the thing that ultimately just takes the thing to an unprecedented level when it never is there any merit to the US holding off on it because they just know how much capital is going to flow in and they know the state of like I mean maybe that's just a little too like out there in terms no, of No, I don't period. think that's dude, I don't think that's out there at all. But I don't think you're ever going to hear anybody especially from the SEC come out and say something like that. So, um no, I don't think that's out there at all at all, Dylan. I mean, yeah, I guess just in a world where Preston you've you've ragged on the the bond market more than anyone. Uh, but you know, how do you keep the thing glued together if they, you know, on the same rails have you know the escape valve? And for a while, I mean, the escape valve's been out there for a decade, but you know, there there has been a lot of a lot of trouble to kind of access it, and it hasn't. It's been more of a niche retail thing, and now just like recently over the last year or two, it's become more institutionalized and, and accepted. But I mean, for for you know the the trillion dollar, ten trillion dollar pools of capital, they still can't buy it. And you know, like as a as a retail individual, like selfishly great you know like but yeah i mean there is definitely some some uh, i think there's it's it's more than just investor protection if if gary gensler or whoever else is parroting that so i actually have a question for the two of you so i'm trying to think of in the next 5 or 10 years do you see bitcoin's volatility increase or decrease and and so i i tend to think that it decreases because you have just this new kind of market participant here that they're not going to chase the price up. I think you saw that over summer. That's kind of why we had this like prolonged kind of rounded bottom where they had these bids set at the bottom of, of you know, 30, 32K and they didn't chase the price up to the top of the range. They just slowly waited for price to come back down and hit those bids. And you saw that whale accumulation on chain. Uh, and then conversely, earlier this year, we had these patient sellers that kind of formed this rounded distribution top. And, and so moving forward, I think there's a, there's a really strong case that we see decreased volatility. But conversely, there's this chart, and, and, and Dylan, you posted it a couple months ago, and, and Preston, I remember seeing you retweeted it. And it's the German mark measured in gold, the chart that we've all seen that you know it just absolutely goes parabolic, but you're actually looking at the volatility that occurred during that, that period of time. And it's, it's really aggressive. You saw these massive 50 to 80% whipsaw moves, which is essentially just the collapse of the currency getting reflected in the pricing of that asset, which in that case was gold. I actually tweeted this out to, to Sailor. Sailor said that he didn't see it playing out that way. Uh, but I'm Why do you think what- he said that? I asked that question for a reason. So love Michael. Michael has a stupidly massive position. Not stupid in the sense of <laughs> like he's being, I think he's being extremely smart, but his size of his position is just astronomical, right? If you had a position that size, what would you be publicly saying, knowing that every politician in the United States or wherever is listening to you? Are you going to go say, yeah, you know what? 
I think this could bring down the whole financial system. I think this could turn into a, a Weimar Germany chart. I know I wouldn't be saying that if I was him. Michael keeps talking about the dollar, and, and I, I completely agree with you, Preston. He's saying Bitcoin is not an attack on the dollar while literally conducting the largest speculative attack on the dollar in yeah. Bitcoin terms, maybe I think we've ever seen publicly. And it's completely the right decision to do it, right? Yeah. He's calling like the capital markets bluff. But I think in terms of volatility, in purchasing power terms, Bitcoin's volatility is going to continue to decrease. It's going to appreciate the upside by orders of magnitude. But in terms of the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month volatility in purchasing power terms, I think in 2030, it's essentially maybe 2035, whatever the timeline is, it's essentially going to be appreciating by a few percentage points a year based on human productivity gains. But in terms of BTC USD volatility for the next decade, I think you're basically going to see this everything bubble continue to unwind and re kind of hyperinflate you know, on the asset side of things. And, and now it's happening in just broad money supply. It's hitting the CPI gauge now. You're going to see that volatility expressed as Bitcoin goes from a $60,000 asset, it's going to go to a 500000 and a million. And eventually that volatility and the Bitcoin derivatives market when the Bitcoin derivative longs get liquidated, the equity market index will draw down in tandem because it's, it's basically going to be the most pure form of the fiat everything bubble that we've ever seen. And I think we're still in the price discovery mode of Bitcoin where its monetization is still, you know, it's still a very small percentage of the population and the global capital market assets. But as it increasingly consumes all of it, it's like you know, basically the fiat the Bitcoin price will be like just a measure of how much the Fed and other central banks are going to print, right? And you know they're going to continue printing for as long as they can, maybe in, in fits and starts. But I think the volatility will only increase in that sense. I saw this article earlier today that was sent to me, and it was, I think it was saying like ECB was basically like inadvertently blaming crypto for some of the inflation or something like that. And you know, I was just thinking like this is just the start of these kind of narratives. As we start to see Bitcoin's monetization really accelerate, you're going to start to see these people that are you know, hanging on to the ship as it's sinking. They're going to come out and say everything under the sun, including, oh, well, these Bitcoin guys, they're the reason why the system is collapsing. right? No and and that, that, that's going to be kind of, I think, the, the last narrative that we see before the demise of the dollar. So as far as volatility going up in the next five, I, th- I really think the time frame here of this thing really starting to just just literally go to the moon is probably five years. People that are saying that it's going to take 15 or 20 years, I'm just like, you obviously don't understand where the bond market is today. And I find that the timeline, I think, is way more based off of the macro backdrop than necessarily the halving cycle of Bitcoin. I think that that's just keeping it kind of plugging away. And it's it's just every time that having event happens, what it's really doing is it's locking in more trust. It's locking in more people that trust it more than the old system. But where the old system, looking at Bitcoin versus the older system, where that's going to really kind of just totally break down is when the old system gets so mutilated that nobody wants to participate in it because they just know it's just a total fantasy land farce, manipulated to the nth degree type system. And I think you're already kind of getting there right now. When I look at like the bond yield curve in, in Europe, dude, it's done. It's toast. The whole thing, all durations, it's just totally toast. 
And now you're watching like the 30 year to like their 15 or 10 year is starting to penetrate the resistance line that you've had for literally decades. Yeah, I mean, that's insane. It's totally insane. You're not quite there in the US with the uh, government issued debt here in the US. But when I kind of model out where I think those yields are moving, like this coming summer, the summer of 22 into the fall of 22 is where I'm seeing the US bond yield curve is going to get quite interesting. So five years from now, I mean, and where do they go from there? They can't go anywhere from there. Like the free and open market's already selling off in the bond market on those longer durations. It's selling off like crazy and the Fed hasn't even moved. They're still stuck at zero. And so now the market's totally wagging their tail. And it used to always be the exact opposite where they would for they'd have their forward guidance, they'd do it for months and months, half a year or whatever. Then they'd finally move it a quarter basis or 25 basis points and um everything would kind of gyrate around and then they'd wait for the next big forward guidance. But this is way different. This is way different. The supply chains are jacked. I kind of suspect that as these things really kind of get into the final phase where they really start to die, it's in the supply chains because all those price signals that cost the capital, like you'd mentioned, Will, it's just totally mutilated. It's toast. And so these companies that have like all these contracts for commodities that in a lot of cases are firm fixed price terms that are three-year contracts for $50 million worth of this part, $100 million worth of that part, right? And then they have to assemble it and then they have to, and you keep going up that supply chain, any little disruption downstream wrecks havoc on everything that has that part that opens up as you go further up the supply chain. I mean, we're there. We're seeing it. You're seeing all the reports now that like nobody expects this thing to remedy itself in 22. And uh, I expect it to actually, and I don't want to sound like a pessimist here or like an alarmist, but like I expect this to get way worse. I think it's going to get way worse. The craziest thing is seeing, and, and I agree, Preston, the craziest thing is seeing White House officials or you know some senators and they'll say, this new stimulus, this new $2 trillion stimulus pack, it'll fix the, the supply chain issues, which were caused by Keynesianism to, hey, we're going to go stimulate and throw a bunch of new money at goods to stimulate the economy, quote unquote. And it's like the solution to increasing the money supply by 30% and seeing all of this crazy inflation is to print more money. And it feels like I'm, it feels like crazy I'm out of the town. matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like everyone's still plugged in. I'm just like, how do you measure inflation? And it's like, how is no one else seeing this? I mean, and increasingly people are, but there's still, you know, the Wall Street guys that have been in the system for 20, 30 years. I mean, there's a lot of people that have an irrational amount of trust and then incumbent, just, you know, incumbent institutions, I guess I would say. And thank God, you know, that we have this, this thing that doesn't require any trust and we can verify ourselves and run our own nodes and hold our own keys and move anywhere in the world with, with all our wealth in our head. I mean, in a time like this, uh, without Bitcoin, it would, I, would be, I would be quite pessimistic. If, I can't lie. Hey, all I have to say is our, you know, our purchasing power is uh, increasing though. It is. <laughs> I had a buddy send me a message like, hey, I'm talking with this hardcore value investor. Like, What would you ask him? And I said, oh, that's easy. I said, how in the world is he doing an IRR calculation when we just had a CPI print of 6.2%? Because any stock, I don't care what it is that you pull up. I mean, you're getting IRRs of 3%, 2%, right? And you just had a CPI print of 6.2 and, and it doesn't look like any of that's going to change. And so like my question to these people doing these equity valuations is like, okay, so 
What do you do when you got a negative 400 basis point spread between which you are finding the value of what it's trading for on the open market versus just inflation alone? Not even talking about operational risk or anything else that's associated with it's crazy. Like, I just don't know how people can walk around and have their blinders on that strong and not start asking a whole lot of questions. Hey, is there a metric that you two disagree on? Because I know you guys talk all the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think there's too much that we disagree on just because we're texting pretty much every day. So we, we're pretty much always bouncing ideas off each other. And if there is anything like that, we pretty much kind of like, you know, flatten out that kink whenever it, whenever it occurs. So yeah, I, I don't really think there's anything, to be honest. All right. So how about this? What is the most misunderstood aspect of on-chain analysis that you think the mainstream Bitcoin Twitter folks don't understand or misunderstand? I know what my answer is. I want to hear what you guys got. I think it's the fact that it should not be used on the very short-term timeframes. I think whenever we have a short-term drawdown, I usually get people mentioning, oh, but that supply shock though. What happened to that? <laughs> and it's, it's like, okay. When we're, talking about, when we're talking about a supply shock, we're talking about the amount of available supply that to be bought is, is decreasing. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we have the other side of the equation, which is the demand. And so the way I kind of think of this is that we have the fuel kind of laid out via the supply side. And we had this through the end of the summer, but you also have this, the other side of the equation, which is the demand that has to step in. And so oftentimes, you know, there, there can be these discrepancies or, or divergences between what happens with the price and what's going on with the supply dynamics. One, one example would be over the summer, you had uh, through a metric that I created with uh, Willy Woo called illiquid supply shock, which compares the highly liquid in liquid entities. So these are, in layman's terms, just entities that sell a lot of the coins that they take in and comparing that to the illiquid entities. So people that take in and hold at least 75% of the coins they take in. So they take in four coins, they hold at least three out of the four. So you had this really strong divergence between the two. And seeing that, you know, it didn't necessarily mean that we were going to see price appreciation within days, right? It just meant that in a broader sense over the next couple months, as demand steps in, as long as you don't have more supply becoming liquid, then eventually you're going to see the marginal bidder having to bid the price up because there's not as much available circulating supply. Like, for example, like this metric, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but when you see supply becoming illiquid, it doesn't always translate to price action immediately. But when you see supply becoming liquid, it, it does. Because if you just think from first principles, what that means is that supply that was previously held by entities who don't sell are now moving their coins usually onto exchanges to be sold versus if you're seeing supply get locked up, that doesn't necessarily mean that the marginal bidder is stepping in aggressively to bid the price up. So, I mean, that's just one example, but I, I think in, in general, on-chain analytics, we have some shorter-term metrics that we look at, but generally, when I think of what's the sweet spot for this type of analysis, it's really kind of three to six months out. That's where I think we kind of have the, the best hit rate. When you backtest some of these things, for example, like the liquid supply shock ratio I mentioned, since 2018, that has about a 91% correlation with, between price on kind of a week to week interval. So, uh, like these things don't always translate immediately to price because, as we mentioned, I look at it as on chain is kind of this 
underlying broader kind of behavioral cycle where you have the derivative stuff that's really key. And, and also we talk about like price levels and, and uh, watching like the order books, all these kinds of things really impact the price on the very short-term timeframe. So that'd be my answer. I would agree on that. I think, I think one of the things that as, as someone that wants to accumulate more Bitcoin, as I, I, would, you know, <laughs> I would consider myself basically uh, to be a Bitcoin maximalist. And I prefer honestly like monetary rationalist <laughs> maybe in the sense of like monetary maximalism uh, in the sense that I think been, uh, you know, money is a winner take all dynamic and Bitcoin has already won in the sense, you know, from a game theoretic perspective. But I think the, the fascinating thing with on-chain is I'm looking to increase my stack as much as, as possible. And so um, there's times in the, you know, in the Bitcoin kind of cycle where like at the top of say 2017 or 2018, there could still be capital flooding like into the network to buy Bitcoin, allocate to Bitcoin, but price could be drawing down a lot. Where at the same time, you could have price bidding up to insane levels going parabolic with you know, the same amount of capital flowing in. And it's just because of the on-chain, what on-chain quantifies is the other side of the equation, like Will touched on, is, is the supply and, and what it's moving. The characterization of a Bitcoin bull market, a reflexive one, is that you know, there's this huge wave of demand crashing into a tiny like pinhole of available supply. And so it's like, you know, like the movie theater's on fire and everyone's trying to run out. And then I guess maybe the movie theater on fire is, is fiat, <laughs> um, but everybody's trying to run into, you know, the available free float of Bitcoin that's, you know, basically ever, ever decreasing, but it's variable in the sense of, you know, one to three to six month time frame where you have, you know, old coins maybe taking profits and, and whatnot. Um, so we can kind of see that from an on-chain side of things, which makes it really fascinating. Well, and both of you guys, I agree with you 100%. So my frustration when I'm on Twitter is the time frame that I operate is just these really long time frames. Like I'm looking for, like in short term for me is a year. Yeah. So if I'm posting on something I'm and I'm saying, hey, this thing's about to, you know, Bitcoin's about to make a run. I'm saying like, in the coming months, right? Like, I'm saying like the next three months. You like drew this. that parabola. You drew that parabola with the, uh, the upper and lower bands. I don't even know. It was like middle of summer and you posted it. Oh, posted back in 20 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And you posted it in like linear terms, the, the, the parabola. Yeah. And it just looked so, so stupid. Yeah. It looked, you looked like the biggest like moon boy perma bull. And you're like, listen, this, this having mechanic, it's happening, whether you like it or not, quantitative tightening, look at past cycles, we're going up in, in log terms, here's what I'm thinking. And for, like, for months on end, as Bitcoin was ripping past 20,000 all-time highs, it was- It was, oh, right it was on the money, yeah. And you nailed it. Um, and so you know, that, that sort of stuff, like you know, Bitcoin, it, like, it feels like people have already figured this out. It feels like, oh, the having's coming, everybody knows what happened, what's going to happen. But like no one knew what was going to happen outside of like the internet nerds that are that are paying attention to this thing. Um, but I can't imagine what it's going to be on the next having event. <laughs> but can you imagine like how many more? I just look at how many people have kind of come into the space just in the last two years that weren't they were nowhere to be found back in the 2017 run. I mean, it's you just them were in diapers. <laughs> No, I'm I'm serious. There's just so many people that have kind of come on in the last year and a half that have added so much tremendous value. And I just can't imagine how many more people they're going to tell, how many more people are going to show up when we get to the next having event. And assuming the bond market doesn't like literally just explode, right? Like I just, 
this thing is gaining steam and it goes back to Will's comment he had, like, look at the user adoption rate up to the right, has been for a decade, hasn't slowed down. Like if you were looking at a company and you're looking at their top line or you're looking at like how many more users are signing up for quote unquote Facebook or Twitter or whatever it was, like everyone would be like, well, I've got to own that. But for some reason, because this thing's quote unquote competing with government money, like it's almost like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I understand all those metrics, but there's just no way because they, they're coming to it with the opinion that there's just no way. And like, that's their argument. It's like, yeah. you might want to pull on that thread a, a touch more. I think like one other thing is, is like the barrier to entry to understand Bitcoin now is oh. way lower than it was yeah. years ago. I mean, we have so many podcasts now. I can't, I mean, yeah, you I can't, can't even, even listen count to them. on my hand. Yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's no way that you kind of have to pick and choose now what you want to listen to and articles. About your own ego. That's what it's about. It's about your own ego. Oh my right? God. Amen to that. And it's yeah. amazing how Bitcoin will just, it will expose that so fast. I mean, I've, I've seen it so many times over the, just the last five, six years of just like, these people will come into the space and just like, if you have an ego, this thing just rips you apart, like instantly. And then they double down. <laughs> they double down. And it's just like, there's too many people that know too much about like all the different arguments around this that uh, yeah, is crazy. I got a couple questions on this one for you guys. Taproot with uh, the impact on on-chain data and analytics. I think, I think there's a, a bit of a misconception here. So like, the, the only way it really affects us is in the sense that, and when I'm saying us, it's, it's the people actually doing the heuristics at Glasgow. Me and Dylan are really just reading charts. But <laughs> it, it affects the ability to identify the difference between a multi-sig transaction and a normal transaction, as well as a lightning transaction and a regular transaction. So it doesn't actually uh, affect our ability to analyze a lot of these metrics we're talking about. But in terms of distinguishing between those, those multi-sig and lightning transaction, it, it does. Uh, so for for some of the lightning data, it affects it a bit, but also it's not going to affect things when you're looking at like capacity or number of channels or number of nodes and all those kinds of lightning metrics. Do you guys have yeah. Do you guys have any channels that you've opened up? Yeah, yeah, I got about fifty five lightning channels. Uh, oh, that's right, Dylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we we have a channel, right? We have a channel. There I you go. Like See, million sats. What am I uh, What am I asking here? Did I open it or did you open it? Or did, no, no, we both opened one. I think so. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, that's a that's a whole other rabbit hole, and it's pretty fascinating to go down about the disintermediation of of not only you know central banking, but all these kind of rent seeking payment processors like Visa, Amex, all that. So I had a chat with uh, Pierre Rochard just like probably two days ago, and I said, Pierre, what if I open a channel with somebody else, and that person decides to close the channel three months later, but the Bitcoin that I used to open that channel was purchased. Let's just say, to use an exaggeration, let's say it was it was Bitcoin that was purchased at ten dollars, right? And the price now is sixty thousand dollars. And let's say I opened the channel for a full Bitcoin with this other node. I don't even know who they are, but then they close the channel. They force close the channel. I said, now I've got other other channels with other people. So my balance, if if I was routing payments through my node, and let's say all that that one full Bitcoin was on my side, on my node side, but through routing transactions, it all got pushed to this other person, and then they closed the channel. I said, what's my tax responsibility? Because the on-chain layer one looks like I sold my one Bitcoin to that person, right? Pierre started laughing. He's like, 
that you have no tax burden. I said, hold on a second. Hold on a second. If somebody was doing analytics on layer one and they saw when that one coin was purchased and they saw that the, the coin is now in the ownership of another address that I don't control, it looks like there was a sale where there would be a $59,800 gain for that transaction, right? Even though my net balance on my node is still one Bitcoin, because if it flowed through my node and out to the other person, I still have a, a, a Bitcoin on my node, right? But for like, it would what look- are you implying, Preston? <laughs> I think I'm no, and, and I'm not trying to raise a, a concern or like, I'm not trying to raise something that I just, I don't think anybody's considering like the ramifications of that as as maybe we go into laws, restrictions to tax responsibilities, like uh, for people that are just running a node, right? And, And opening channels, but yet my net balance hasn't changed whatsoever. Now, the uh, when I'm looking at it from just like an intuitive standpoint, like I don't feel like I have any type of tax burden because my net balance hasn't changed at all, right? But if you're using layer one transactions to make decisions as to whether you need to ping somebody for a payment for the capital gains, like you can see where the confusion would arise. Yeah, I just yeah. I don't think the current system, in, in terms of like the regulatory structure, is set up for for this new system that we're heading into. I think. There's a lot of discrepancies, and we just need more Bitcoin-friendly people in, in, yeah. in the regulatory <laughs> landscape. And, and I raise it more for, like, let's say, I know there's, there's senators and representatives that follow my account, so I'm sure maybe they listen to some of the shows. And I think this is a really important thing for people to think about when they hear, that's one heck of a quandary to be in. It's like, I didn't sell anything. Like, I still, you know, using the one Bitcoin example, I still got the one Bitcoin on, on the note. But somebody else has the original one that I purchased from when, whenever, right? And there's, it might look like there's a capital gains, but there isn't. So, like people who want to come in and try to regulate this space aggressively and quickly are totally misunderstanding like how like important it is to not get that wrong. Because if you do get it wrong here, like there's going to be other countries that get it very right, and uh, they're not going to be stifling what what eventually you're going to have to go back to anyway. They're just not going to trip and fall in the process. It goes back to like the the sovereign individual with the whole like regulatory Mm -hmm. arbitrage thing. That's exactly right. And the game theory kicks in and all that. Sorry to go off in that direction. It's interesting. I've never thought about that. It's an interesting thing that just kind of popped up this week. And I was talking and Pierre, I mean, he's, he is very involved in lightning development with Kraken. And, um, you know, I was just asking him, I was like, Hey, so how do you think about this? And he's just like, did you see the news that, um, and I, I'm 99% sure this was, was released, that Lightning, or that, that Tether will be coming to Lightning. So tether think about, be, hold on. So what does explain this? I don't understand what you mean. So there was a new Bitcoin company, I think, oh God, off the top of my head, I, I forget. Uh, it was John Carvalho. Yeah, that infamous like, interview with Roger Ver when he, Roger was like flipping off the camera. Um, uh, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fumble this whole, this whole company. So. Uh, check it out. But uh, the, the Tether CTO, uh, Powell, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm bad with names at the moment, but uh, the guy that basically runs Tether and Bitfinex's like, technical side of things, been around the space for a while. They're basically, um, I think they announced that they're going to bring, you know, because Tether, USDC, they're using all these different blockchains. Like Tether, uh, USDC 
has Ethereum uh, ERC20 rails. It yeah, has Tron yeah. TRX rails. Try sending a stable coin on, uh, on uh, the Ethereum blockchain the other day. It cost me $25, but that's a different, that's a different uh, topic. Um, but basically, I think you're going to see eventually, you're going to see either it's going to be some sort of synthetic stable coin, USD value that's pegged. Um, and there's going to be kind of like counterparties on both sides of this, almost like in a derivative type way. And you're going to see dollar, you know, synthetic dollar settlement uh, on, on lightning rails. Because again, like Jack Mahler's hammers this point home all the time. He's like, we settle basically free. I mean, it's not free. But we settle basically free. Relative to everything else it is, yeah. You know, like Preston, if, if, if me and you are sending payments to each other every day, well, we can set up a public lightning channel, but we can set up a private lightning channel. And you don't even, no one can see this. It's routed over Tor, and we're just streaming value to each other. Uh, and we can do it a million times a, a second if we have that, the bandwidth to do it, you know? So, uh, I mean, something like, you know, whether it's Tether or whether it's you know another kind of stable coin or someone that comes down the line and then settles synthetic dollars euros yen whatever it is um it's all going to come to lightning rails and i think this intermediation of, of kind of all of that and the legacy financial system where i send funds to go you know buy bitcoin on on coinbase if i want to do that and it takes five days for me to to be able to withdraw that bitcoin because my bank transfers slow like that's that's all coming to an end oh, yeah. you know, faster than most can imagine if you have an article on that, I would love to read it and share it uh, for people. If you can find one, we'll have that in the show notes. This is, the, this is the, the hardest question I got for you guys. Will, were you expecting the rap video from me? Man, I was, I was, I was dying when I saw that. Um, <laughs> you have no idea. Like, Dude, check this out. Oh, you have no idea how you know, hard I worked on that. that that's what I was going to say. The, the, real, the real funny part of that is just when I was thinking like, he must have put like forty-five <laughs> minutes or an hour into this video. Oh, it was more than that. It was oh, more. Wow. Than, it was oh, more. Than, it, you it edited was, uh, it in everything. I think it was a Sunday night, and um, you had your post, and I was just laughing, right? And I was like, I can bang something out. And I was looking at the time, and it was—I don't know—it was like seven o'clock or something like. That. It's like I don't have anything like rare night where I don't have anything on my plate to knock out. It's like you know what. I'm just going to have a little fun tonight. Let me see what I can do here. And I think it was like 11 o'clock when I finished up and I was like, oh, here we go. And I just posted it and like, I got no response from you. And I was like, how is he not responding to my rap video? <laughs> yeah. So I saw it the next morning. I was like, how did I not see this? And then, and then people, uh, people started, you know, I retweeted it and then people were like, oh my gosh, this, this is hilarious. Like, I think I laughed for a good two or three minutes straight. <laughs> and it was, it, it, it was like, the the editing was on point too. Like the the the, the lyrics itself were, were pretty funny, but just like you had yourself like edited in the in the car and it, yeah, it was, it was hilarious, man. I had so much fun, guys. This has been so much fun for me. Uh, Will I remember the first text message you sent the first time we chatted, the first article you were like, "Hey, can you read this?" And if you like it, retweet it. Like it is just so exciting for me to see you two add so much value to the space and get recognized for it and then just take it to a whole new level. It is just so much fun to, to be an observer of this. And the, if there was any type of small part that I played, like I'm just, a big thrilled. Part, I'm just thrilled. A no, big part. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And uh, I just cannot even imagine where you, you, where you two will be when you're 30, 40 years old. Like I just cannot imagine where you guys are going to be. 
Thank you for making Appreciate time. Appreciate you having us on, man. Oh. This is, uh, it, it's surreal. It's pretty surreal. Just like, I mean, we, we talked before, I think, you know, yeah. we were interacting with you like in February, March and like, yo, what was your story? You know, kind of like orange <laughs> film always like, yeah, listen to this, this guy Preston a lot. And I was like, oh my God, same. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty cool, you know, being here late 2021, uh, talking to you on the, on the infamous investors podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but before before we got on here, me and Dylan were chatting for like twenty minutes, and we were just like, "This is nuts, man! I can't believe we're about to get on this podcast with Preston. This is so crazy!" Like, <laughs> well, we need yeah. to do it more often. You guys, I mean, the, your comments, your knowledge—how in the hell do you have this knowledge at twenty? I can't even understand how you would have this knowledge at twenty. But we need to keep doing it. Thank when we're you legal to drink, we got to get a drink. Hey, yeah. You know, I should have had a drink here tonight and just been, you know, showing off in front of you too. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Preston. I really enjoyed this. This was, this was amazing. It's a blast. We definitely need to blast, do it guys. again. Are you guys going to Miami? Yeah, I'll be there. There you go. We're going to hang out in Miami. Are you 21 in April? Yeah. I can be. Does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. Oh, I want you guys to be able to provide a handoff. Will, you're working on a podcast. You just interviewed Plan B and Willie Wu. Tell people what you have going on and then Dylan, you, you follow it up. Thanks for the plug. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of hit all the content stuff at Blockware through a little branch we call the Blockware Intelligence. So we have A, a newsletter, which I send out to about, I think we just passed 53,000 subscribers. Uh, that's like a weekly kind of market overview based on on-chain as well as we have uh, some some Bitcoin related equity content, and we just hired on uh, Joe Burnett, who is like III Capital on Twitter, uh, to do some some mining content as well. And then we have a podcast that I interview different people in the space every week. Preston, we got to get you on there maybe sometime I'd love next to. month. Awesome, yeah. And and then as well, we do like uh, a weekly like kind of market overview and in, in video con and in, in video version as well. So uh, feel free to check any of that stuff out if you're interested in in any market related stuff. And then. I'm on Twitter at W Clementi III. Dylan. Yeah. I, so I'm working with Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, joined there in about March. Um, right now I'm heading the, the deep dive. So we, we also uh, put out content, uh, Bitcoin content, uh, bit, you know, legacy finance stuff, on-chain uh, derivative markets. We do that on a, on a daily basis and we have you know, free and, and paid tiers. So we send out like, you know, an email, a market update a week to just everybody. And we, you know, also kind of just like doing stuff with Bitcoin Magazine, like hopping on spaces, podcasts, all that. Uh, just recently joined kind of they have a, a Bitcoin kind of a Bitcoin fund where we try to implement some of the stuff we talked about uh, today. So I uh, started to work with them a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, appreciate you having me on. I guess, you know, give me a follow on Twitter, hit my DMs, which are you know kind of flooded, but uh, I'll try to get back to you if, you know, to give back a little bit, uh, you know, if you have any questions or whatnot. Um, you know, reach out. But, you know, again, really appreciate you having us on, Preston. This was a blast. Absolutely. All right, guys. Until next time. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.